today I'll quickly review pertinent aspects of the inner scaling block. The inner scaling block is considered a basic block and is the most commonly used block in many practices. If you're confused about the anatomy we talk about today, it may help to review the Brachial Plexus Review Podcast or to visit the websites Neuraxium, New York School of Regional Anesthesia, or USRA.ca. They all have great pictures to help elucidate the anatomy involved with this block. The inner scalene is a great block for shoulder surgery and upper arm surgery. It's flexible in that you can do a single shot block or place a catheter for continuous infusion for prolonged pain relief. Relatively large volumes of anesthetic bathe the inner scalene groove around C5 to 6, which innervates the muscles of the shoulder, including the deltoid, supraspinatus, infraspinatus, teres major, and minor. There's preferential block of C5 to 7 with C8 to T1 sparing. So the ulnar is spared 30 to 50% of the time, which is why if you want coverage of the hand and fingers, this block will probably be insufficient. The block is done at the level of the C6 vertebral body, also called Chassaignac's tubercle. This also happens to be at the level of the cricoid cartilage. Here we're blocking the plexus at the level of the trunks, that is the superior, middle, and inferior trunks. These are sandwiched between the anterior and middle scalene muscles. It's very easy to see on ultrasound, but if you don't have access to ultrasound, you'll be relying a lot on landmarks, especially feeling the inner scalene groove between the anterior and middle scalene muscles. To actually do the block, the patient is semi-recumbent if doing with ultrasound or supine if doing with nerve stimulation. The block ends up being more posterior in the neck than you'd think, and a pillow is a very common obstacle to good access. I always move the pillow off to the side so the side I'm working with is entirely free and clear. We set up our regional tray as usual and the plexus is pretty superficial here so a 22 gauge 5 inch needle is more than enough. Pertinent landmarks are the sternal and clavicular heads of the sternocleidomastoid and the cricoid cartilage. The access point will be at the level of the cricoid cartilage just lateral to the clavicular head of the sternocleidomastoid, where you can feel the inner scaling groove dipping off. If you use a nerve stimulator technique, the goal is to see deltoid, triceps, biceps, or pectoralis muscle twitching at an intensity of 0.2 to 0.4 milliamps. Nysora mentions that all of these will lead to an equivalent block. If you're seeing hand or forearm twitching, you're too caudal in the plexus and you need to redirect up. If you're seeing neck twitching, you're probably stimulating the sternocleidomastoid or the scalene muscles themselves and you need to redirect. If you're seeing the trapezius or scapular movement, you're too posterior and you need to redirect more anteriorly. If you encounter diaphragm twitches, you're too anterior and stimulating the phrenic nerve and need to redirect posteriorly. If you're using ultrasound, many recommend starting at the supraclavicular level since the subclavian artery is an easy to find landmark to find the plexus. From there, you can trace up the neck to find where the plexus looks just like in the textbooks. Three trunks lined up in a row 
with the anterior scalene medial to the plexus and the middle scalene lateral to the plexus. The probe is going to be in an axial orientation and it's possible to approach the plexus either in plane or out of plane. In plane you can approach it either laterally or through the middle scalene or medially through the anterior scalene muscle. If you approach medially you have to be very careful to avoid the carotid and IJ. Lateral to the plexus is the middle scalene muscle and medial to it is the middle scalene muscle. Superficial to it is the sternocleidomastoid muscle. With the lateral approach, you watch the needle pass through the middle scalene muscle and into the plexus. The goal is to see the donut sign with the local anesthetic surrounding the plexus. As always, it's wise to aspirate frequently and to stop if there's high pressure on injection or the patient jumps off the table from pain on injection. Nearby pertinent structures are the carotid, internal jugular, phrenic nerve, and cervical sympathetic chain. This can get us into all kinds of trouble with this block. Carotid puncture can occur and if local is delivered unknowingly can lead to seizures. If it is discovered, withdraw the needle and hold pressure for at least 5 minutes. With this block, we'll take out the phrenic nerve 100% of the time and this will lead to diaphragm weakness on the same side as the block. This could become very important in someone with poor baseline lung function with minimal respiratory reserve. And even healthy people can feel dyspnea after phrenic nerve block. And they need reassurance that it will resolve as soon as the block wears off. Finally, blocking the cervical sympathetic chain will lead to Horner syndrome with ipsilateral ptosis, conjunctival hyperemia, pupillary constriction, and nasal congestion. Again, reassurance that this will resolve once the block begins to wear off is all that's needed. By the way, Neuraxium.com has an absolutely beautiful cartoon animation of the block and how the local anesthetic spreads with an inner scaling block. It's a great resource in general if you've never visited it before. So a few questions that I was hoping to answer with some research. Is the interscaling block better with ultrasound or with nerve stimulation? This is a huge area of debate and there are no definitive answers, but Soding and colleagues examined interscaling block for shoulder surgery and report more complete early sensory and motor block at 10 and 20 minutes when using ultrasound than with nerve stimulation but they found no difference in anesthetic success, duration of analgesia, or patient satisfaction scores with either technique. Does using lower volume of anesthetic reduce respiratory complications? Riazi and colleagues showed that low volume 5 ml ultrasound guided interscaling block was associated with fewer respiratory complications than compared with standard volume 20 ml local anesthetic infiltration. They showed 45% diaphragmatic paralysis with low volume versus 100% diaphragmatic paralysis with standard volume interscaling block. What's the incidence of nerve damage after interscaling block? Bishop and colleagues looked at 462 patients with interscaling block and showed a 97% success rate and 2.3% complication rate, the most common of which was sensory neuropathy which resolved on its own in 10 out of 11 patients. 
One patient had CRPS that resolved within three months. So there you have it, the inner scaling block in under 10 minutes. See you next time.